You are listening to an artist interview from Chirp Radio. You can find more interviews at chirpradio.org slash podcasts. Ninja with Sherp Radio Artist Interviews. I'm on the line right now with Riley Walker. You have a new album, Course in Fable. So you start, you grew up in Rockford and you eventually came to Chicago. Tell people a little bit about how that journey came about or how long you wanted to make that move before you finally did it. Sure. Um, well, yeah, I was born and raised in Rockford and I moved to Chicago right after like high school stuff. I went to... Uh, Columbia College, known for its really tough admissions and great criteria. Just kidding. That school's a scam. And I'm sorry to anybody listening who goes there. I went there. Maybe it's better now. I don't know. But I went there for like a year. I wasn't really a good student. And I found like a bunch of cool music in and around Chicago at that time. In the burgeoning like Logan Square, Pilsen scenes. It was right before like hardcore Whole Foods-ish times in both those neighborhoods. Um, and there, there was a lot of exciting stuff. So I, I, I went crazy at like house shows all over town. And you did a lot of like the DIY shows out in Logan. Yeah, this is like 2007. I moved there. Around then, there was like a cool place called Applebee's and the Mopery, Mortville, Treasure Town, Flower Shop, and Pilsen. There was like a cool network of house show things. I'm sure there still is. Well, I think with pandemic, like it's weird. I think a lot of the DIYs a little bit different. At this point, I think once once we come out of it, I think it's going to be like one of those things where like a lot of the DIYs that existed pre aren't so much there. So even like, you know, you're going back to 2007, a lot of those don't exist anymore. But like, like with the ones that existed in 2019 are probably not going to be around in 2021. Um, yeah, they come and go and people get older and don't want to like run them anymore. It's like, it's pretty fun to do when you're like younger and don't have any ambitions except to just like, you know, drink tall boys and listen to f***ed up music. <laughs> it's true just kind of walking like listeners through a little bit of your your journey out to new york so you you went from rockford to chicago and then you went from chicago to new york so what precipitated that move and what are you enjoying about new york that's keeping you there yeah um well i lived in chicago for oh, uh, like 11 years and um I, I had a great time you know all the best and worst times of my life were there and i don't know i think i just hit a point where i wanted to Go out to the East Coast. I, I always like New York. I like big cities, so why not go to the next biggest one? I want to be closer to the East Coast because I get a lot more shows out there and stuff. But Chicago's a great creative place, and I'm very grateful for all my friends who are there now and who have since left and everything. It was a great time, but I, I like being in New York. It's just a new environment and big and giant and good food, and it's stinky. I, I like everything about it. Snapshot of love from winded by the breeze. Speaking of, you know, Chicago collaborators, I think you have Bill McKay on this new record, right? You had collaborated with him previously on the Land of Plenty record, which going back to Logan Square, you guys were residency at Whistler, right? Yeah, that's right. I met Bill maybe a couple years prior to that. And we, we both like a lot of the same guitar music and so we we became fast friends have been, and have been playing ever since. And obviously, I'm sure your listeners know he's still very active in the Chicago scene and is doing amazing stuff. You recorded Course and Fable out in Portland. How did that come about? You were just like, can you come out to Portland and play on a couple of tracks? Was he out there the whole time? What, what did that 
collaboration kind of look like for this record specifically? I did a tour in Europe, maybe January of 2020. And I started to write new songs at sound checks and stuff like that. And backstage, I got like eight or nine songs together. And I was like, well, hot dog. I think I got enough for a record here. And Bill, his musical instincts are just so great. And I don't have to ask a lot of questions. He doesn't ask a lot of questions. It just kind of happens naturally. And I guess it's one of those things. It's just a nice organic collaboration we always have. So he was, and I'm not very good at guitar solos, but I knew I wanted guitar solos on the record. I can play like cool guitar stuff, but when it comes to like a solo, I kind of stink at that. It's not really my strong suit. So as far as like a lead guitar role, he was the only person I had in mind. I really, I wasn't thinking of anybody else. I demoed them. And then eventually sent the demos to the band, Bill McKay, Andrew Young, who lives in Chicago, and Ryan Jewell, who is in Denver now. I went to Chicago last summer, June of 2020, and we did like band demos with Cooper Crane. He he plays in Bitchin' Bajas and Caves and all sorts of other bands. So we were fully prepared. I've never been fully prepared making a record ever. I usually have these half-baked ideas. So it was kind of nice having some sort of preparation. I don't know why I haven't been doing that forever. I'm like banging myself over the head now. Like, wow, I could have saved a lot of time and money. And eventually, yeah, we went out to Portland and knocked the whole thing out in just a few days with uh, John McIntyre. Is this the new normal then for Riley Walker where you're like, oh man, I'm going to plan, that's your SOP? Yeah, well, when it comes to like indie rock song sort of records, definitely. I think there's a time and place for like that wild improv, make it up sort of stuff. And those can make cool records when you chop them and screw them and get the best bits of all the takes. When it comes to the song ones, yeah, I, I don't ever want to go back to just like being in a studio and not knowing what the record is. I think I'm more efficient with my time and small amount of funds I have to spend in a studio these days. Seems fair. So then I'm curious, the end of Access Bent, where it just devolves into like cacophony. <laughs> and then the song, I do like where the song just picks itself back up. How much sort of planning or discussion went into that? Was that a fully sort of orchestrated bit or was that was there some sort of thought process that happened that day? That was just like a cue, you know, so I can say like here here will be a noise part. And generally that just, you know, means go absolutely ham on whatever you're playing, drums or bass or guitar or whatever, and just kind of scronk. And um, that's just kind of a, something I have in the old tool belt, like let's put in a noise part to make the song weirder. And poof, it's a weirder song with that. Is there anything, any other spaces like that on the record where you're like, this part we're going to make up? Yeah, well, the only other part I can think of on the record that has any sort of like jamming or improv bits is the beginning of Pond Scum Ocean. Uh, There's like three minutes or four minutes, I think, where it's us just kind of doing like an instrumental jamming bit. That was edited out of like a 20 minute longer take and put at the beginning of that song. That song was originally kind of like choppy, like a Neil Young and Crazy Horse kind of like you know like a chunky riff but uh ryan the drummer and andrew started doing like this four on the floor i don't know i like to think it was like kind of dancey and brazilian like tom zay inspired or something it was super groovy and i was like let's just do that and that that changed the whole shape of the song and i guess that's an example of a spontaneous decision affecting the outcome of a song on that record And then you t- 
touched on this before a little bit, but I wanted to dig a little bit more into John McIntyre's involvement with the record. How did you pick him for for producing? I know he plays a lot on the record too. Can you talk a little bit about like your history with him and how how that collaboration came to be? I met John in Chicago years back. I, I wouldn't say we were like tight friends or anything, but I, I knew him in passing. And I was obviously like a big fan of Tortoise and Sea and Cake, Gaster Del Sol, Bastro, Stereolab, all, all those bands he's been involved with. I'm a huge fan of. And like Thrill Jockey Records in general was like a big influence when I was a teenager. And so when I had these songs together, they were all kind of like leaning towards some like European fusion-y jazz thing. And every other record I've done has great recordings, but it's all this kind of droney psychedelic experience. I kind of wanted to tone all that down. I want to make it more bare bones if possible and like hi-fi. And I think that's sort of his approach to record making. I didn't have any other names in mind. His name came to my mind about this time last year. I was like, man, I should just make this record with John. I want it to sound like a European fusion record. And I think he would make it sound really cool. It worked out great. We recorded everything live and I just handed over the mixes to him and he did that like post-production magic that he's known for and I think he knocked it out of the park. Nice. Tell me about Husky Pants Records. Husky Pants Records is my own label that I've started, I don't know, maybe a, a two years ago. It's just like another creative endeavor to release music of my own and friends. I was on Dead Oceans for uh, many years and my contract ran up and I just decided to kind of start my own label and do my own thing. No great stories of label beef or dramas. It was totally cool and we're still friends and all that. Probably boring to hear from the listening perspective. If I was listening, I'd want some, some real dirt, damn it. But um, there is none. I've always fancied the idea of putting out music on my own label and paying for it myself. I don't feel like much of a control freak creatively, but I like to put things out constantly and weird music and putting things out constantly that are weird and probably won't sell isn't a a record label's ideal signee. So I said, I'll put that all on myself. So I started putting out like a bunch of weird live records and improv records, some of which sold great and some of which sold diddly squat, um, which is awesome. It's all the ups and downs of it. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's kept me employed over this last year since the whole music biz went away. It, so this is keeping me pretty busy and occupied. And I think it's a, a healthy form of creativity. Any big challenges that you've come across running your own record label that you didn't anticipate? No, I mean, I think I anticipated everything that can go wrong. Basically, what goes wrong is you spend a lot of money and don't recoup. Anybody who buys a record, I, I fully appreciate, and it's awesome. And I'm, I consider myself lucky to be able to see it from beginning to end, from the recording to the mastering to the packaging to taping it up and putting some stamps on it. It's a pretty fun and cool process. It can get tedious, but it's better than like mixing concrete. If a listener sits down and listens to all the tracks on Course and Fable... What's the overriding reaction that you're sort of hopeful that they get? Well, I hope it was worth their time and I appreciate their time and I hope it sounds like a genuine and earnest record. I I mean every note and every word. I appreciate everybody listening to it and all the people in Chicago who who have known for many years and I miss very much. We, we play a lot of Riley Walker on Trip Radio, and so we're always happy to talk to you. This has been Ninja with Trip Radio Artist Interviews. Thanks so much for joining me today, Riley Walker. My pleasure.
This has been an artist interview from Chirp Radio. You can find this and more interviews at chirpradio.org slash podcasts. 